Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. Hello and welcome to episode four of the Read Smart podcast, which is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. In this episode, we'll be discussing biographies with three guests whose work in this particular genre is well known and highly acclaimed. I'm delighted to be joined by Sir Jonathan Bate, whose book, Ted Hughes, The Unauthorised Life, was shortlisted for the 2015 Samuel Johnson Prize, along with art critic William Fever, whose book, The Lives of Lucian Freud, Youth, was shortlisted for the 2019 Bailey Gifford Prize. And we also have Lucy Hughes-Hallett, who joins us uh, to talk about her book, the Pike, which won the 2013 Samuel Johnson Prize. Welcome to all three of you, Jonathan, William and Lucy. We are recording this, of course, under coronavirus restrictions uh, remotely. We're all in our own respective uh, houses, um, I'm assuming. Um, But welcome to you all. I hope this is going to be a really interesting conversation. Let's start with the choice of subject. Um, Jonathan, let's start with you, because I read somewhere that you... uh, you said that you were born to write this book. Just just tell us why. Well, I think it's because um, Ted Hughes was really the poet who got me passionate about poetry and literature when I was at school. Um, I was always uh, just, just sort of fell in love with his work. Um, then over the years, I slightly reacted against him, um, partly because of learning things about his relationship with Sylvia Plath and other women, and also because his later poetry seemed less good than his early poetry. Um, I then spent a lot of time working on the romantic poets of the 19th century, and in particular did a biography of the great nature poet, John Clare. And when I finished that, I thought, I love writing biography. That was the first one I'd done. Who shall I do next? And at exactly that moment, the selected letters of Ted Hughes were published. And then a little after that, his manuscripts all became available. And I began to go back to Hughes's work and explore the whole range of his activity as an environmentalist, um, as someone who was passionate about Shakespeare, who translated from the classics. And I thought, hang on, these are all my interests too. It was as if all my literary interests came together in the figure of Ted Hughes. Lots lots to uh, unpack in terms of the journey that you had in writing that biography. Uh, Lucy, what about you? Uh, Gabrielle D'Annunzio, I think it's probably fair to say, is not a figure that um, a huge number of people in this country, I'm talking about the lay reading public, would have heard of. So what, what drew him to you? Well, um, actually, I was very lucky in this, in that for the first time in my life, I knew what my next book was going to be before I'd finished the previous one. And my previous book was called Heroes, and it was about how the ideas of um, of greatness and people like Carlyle and Nietzsche writing about great men, supermen in the 19th century, opened the way for the 20th century dictators. And D'Annunzio was a part of that story. He he saw himself as a Nietzschean superman. And so, and, and he's a very flamboyant character. I wanted to write a little bit about him for the last section of my hero's book. And I started writing that. And as I said, it was supposed to be kind of, you know, two or three pages. 
And 40,000 words later, I sort of <laughs> drew myself up and, and thought, hang on, this is, this is the next book. So, you know, th- there are two or three pages about Donuzio in Heroes. But then um, there's, the material on him is so rich, partly because he was such a, a flamboyant, deplorable person. And also because he he wrote, not, not only wrote an enormous amount for publication, but he always had a notebook in his pocket and used it. So that I knew, I can know almost, I know more about Denuncio than I do about any of my nearest and dearest. <laughs> That's so interesting. <laughs> we, we'll explore that a little further too, I'm sure. Uh, Bill, your relationship with Lucien Freud uh, goes back a very long way. Um, you, you met him in the early 1970s, or maybe you met him before that, but you certainly started interviewing him in 1973. At what point did you think this is uh, a, a man whose life I would really like to write uh, in, in depth? It was a very slow progress from um, from meeting him and then and then deciding on that. But the very first time I met him, I came down from Newcastle to London. Um, I'd been commissioned by the Sunday Times magazine to write about Freud. I was the sort of unwitting dupe because um, I was brought down from Newcastle as being someone who knew nothing about him, um, wasn't wasn't sort of set in his ways. And the first thing I said to him practically was that I was not at all interested in his private life. Um, and so then followed sort of 50 years of um, a lot of the private life, as well as his public and, and achieved artistic life. Let, let's let's look at the, um, the the tension between um, the the life and the work because this is this is obviously the the, the core of so much um, that biographers have to deal with. I, I mean, let, let's stay with you, uh, Bill, because uh, of course Freud um, didn't want you to write anything about him uh, in terms of the biography that you were working on while he was still alive. But he also said everything is biographical and everything is a self portrait. So when you started to listen back to the long interviews that you had with him and the conversations that you had, daily conversations, how did you think about how you were going to shape the life that you wanted people to read about? Well, of course, all biographies have an arc, don't they? Um, Birth to death. And that's the um, basic structure which helps us all, I think. I've got no idea of being a biographer, I was writing about his work primarily. I was primarily interested in his work. But um, Lucien loved telling stories. He's very funny, confiding. He was full of assiduous remarks about people he disliked, um, full of praise for others. He was loyal. He was difficult. Um, and, and for all sorts of reasons, the biographer's years sort of pricked up at um, meeting him, getting to know him. And gradually finding as the years went on, um, our relationship developed and changed. And eventually it became a kind of extraordinary parallel world in which I kept alongside him, um, caught up with him, overtook him in some respects. And um, for a while, um, we collaborated closely on what was going to be the um, straightforward biography but then he freaked. He's, he, he'd, he'd read a chat which I showed him and he said, well, um, uh, please no, please stop. 
Um, and I, I naturally didn't want to stop. <laughs> and so we agreed that a novel could appear after his death. And we then, having cleared the floor, continued in exactly the same way for day after day for the following um, eight years. And he answered, well, he'd, he'd ring me up every afternoon usually and say, how old am I now? And um, I'd ask him questions and he knew exactly what he was doing. He was telling me all that occurred to him or that seemed interesting at the time. And so I've got this mass of material, which has then taken years to refurbish with other people's um, voices, of course, coming in. Well, 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 we'll talk about the the way in which material is organised as well um, later. But I just want to pick up on the on the idea of the novel that you just alluded to, Lu Lucy. You say in the book that you have freely made use of techniques commoner in fiction writing than in biography. I mean, the the, the you have completely abandoned the idea of a kind of chronological narrative arc because you've decided to go for something um, much more thematic, but but also focusing on on episodes that of his life that you find really interesting. Yes, that's right. I think that uh, a traditional biography, and, and this has largely been superseded by biographical forms that are much more imaginative and interesting, but you know that the old-fashioned biography that begins with the subject's birth and plods through to his or her death, and actually the worst of them don't even begin with the birth, they go back to the grandparents. And uh, th this is very dull. <laughs> and so, <laughs> and I think, it, I, I, I love reading fiction. I read a lot of novels. And writers of fiction routinely take liberties, which, um, which biographers until fairly recently didn't allow themselves. But it seems to me obvious that just as the, any kind of storyteller will start at the most exciting part of the story, and then, if necessarily, flash back to the boring old grandparents. And so a biographer can do that too. And I did, I did use chronology. If you, if you abandon chronology completely, you are adrift. But um, certainly I allowed myself a lot of changes of pace. So there are points in that book where I slow right down, almost to a kind of real time, to record a conversation or a crucial encounter. But then there are other parts where I flash forward through eight years or so where nothing much happened. Jonathan, let's um, let, let's talk about the 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 way in which your writing of this um, life of Ted Hughes really shifted in the middle of you writing it, because you, of course, did have the cooperation of the Hughes estate, but then it was taken away. So just talk us through the the challenges of that, because you you clearly had to rethink how you wrote this biography. Well, that's absolutely right. Yes, it began as a, in a way, a very strictly literary, literary critical biography, focusing almost entirely on the development of the work, working with Hughes's huge body of manuscripts and the way he changed his poems in the draft in quite an academic book, in a way. Um, but then what happened was um, I got busy with other things. I got a job as head of an Oxford college. So I was delayed and the estate in the form of Ted Hughes's widow grew impatient and quite suddenly um, withdrew cooperation from the book. And um, what that meant was that I couldn't then quote extensively from the poetry. 
um, you, there's, a, there's a rule in copyright called fair dealing where you can quote little bits of in-copyright authors without permission of the, the copyright holder. But that very much limited the more literary critical work. And the effect of that was the biography became more expansive. And round about the same time, um, I began to read in his unpublished diaries, and they revealed all sorts of things about the life that seemed to me essential to the story. But because of those copyright restrictions, I had to rely much more on paraphrase, not using his exact words. And in retrospect, that was a loss because his words, his poetry are so wonderful. But it was also a gain and a kind of liberation. I sometimes think in biographies and other nonfiction books where you have huge blocks of quotations, the eyes of the reader glaze over. Because I wasn't able to do that because of those copyright restrictions, I sort of internalised the voice of Ted Hughes. And I think the book did actually become much more readable and rather, following Lucy's example, in a way almost novelistic at times. Fantastic that you use um, the, the, the word voice there. And, and Bill, you mentioned voice as well. Let's, let, let's just talk a little bit about conjuring up the, the voice of the, the, the individuals that you're writing about. I mean, the, the, the prize was, of course, called the Samuel Johnson Prize before it became the Bailey Gifford Prize. And, and, and Johnson's, um, Boswell's life of Samuel Johnson was, was the kind of first definitive biography, if you like. And, and, and Boswell, um, you know, it was drawn from, from Boswell's exact recollections of conversations that he had with Johnson, but also from letters and memoirs and interviews in, in Johnson's circle. In that context, Bill, you know, it must have been very easy for you to have conjured up Lucian's voice because you spoke to him every day and and it was like you were in this in this relationship with this man but you also had to find a way of of conjuring it up for those who didn't have those daily conversations well Lucian did have a special voice um really Eurasia, he would say um, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, his voice was his friends very much liked liked like imitating his voice um I think Basically, what all, all three of us must have faced is that as a boring aspect of biography, which is going too far into the antecedents of the person that you're writing the biography of, you know, who married who prior to when down the, down the centuries. And the other thing we've got is that um, the lo a love of gossip, I hope. Uh, Vasari's Life of the Artist from the um, 1550s, um, this is full of little, little spot anecdotes and anecdotes and gossip are the real stuff of biography, I think, because this is what Boswell also proved with Johnson. Portray him, show him in his bad moods, his good moods, um, shambling through the Western Highlands and so on. And these um, insights or aspects or approaches um, are what make a, a biography a, a live study rather than a dead, dead one. Mm. Uh, uh, Lucy um, Denuncio, his physical voice was uh, was uh, apparently extraordinary. Just just sum up for us from from the research that you did the the kind of impact that he made as a uh, as a as a poet, as an orator, as a leader. Yes, well, uh, he became a celebrated poet while he was still at school. His first volume was published when he was sixteen, and uh, was quite a success. And then his second volume of poetry came out a year later. He was still at school. 
and he was a terrific self-publicist. So he hadn't, as a teenager, been entirely happy with just having a few respectful reviews in the literary journals. So in time for his second publication, he contacted the editor of a newspaper in Florence and he sent a telegram, an anonymous telegram, informing the editor of the tragic death in a riding accident of that brilliant young poet, Gabriele D'Annunzio. So, of course, that this apparent tragic death, a great loss to Italian literature, became a big news story. And so by the time D'Annunzio's second volume of first came out two weeks later, uh, he was a nationwide celebrity. And he continued to be a celebrity, as well as being a very serious writer, a very prolific writer. But then in late middle age, he got a little bit tired of the literary life of being what he called a mere scribbler. And he became a political figure. And that's when, as you say, he began to use his physical voice, not just for seducing women, which he was very good at, or very successful at anyway, um, but also to seduce enormous crowds. And he was a small, rather unimpressive looking man, but he could stand in vast open spaces, like, for instance, the Piazza San Marco in Venice, and he could address tens of thousands of people with no kind of amplification. And Lord knows how he did it. But there are a lot of descriptions by contemporary witnesses, auditors rather, describing the, the effect of his beautiful voice, which apparently you know, rose and fell. I think he was more chanting than speaking, really. Of course, orators in those days, before we all had loudspeakers, microphones of any kind, um, did have to do extraordinary things with their voices in order to reach big crowds. And Donizio was, it's impossible to reproduce this, but by all accounts, he was, he was brilliant at it. Mm. Jonathan, uh, what, what about um, uh, recreating Ted Hughes's voice, both his speaking voice, but, but more his internal voice? I mean, I'm interested in, in the fact that he made notes on absolutely everything. He kept these journals and these letters were extraordinary. Uh, and, and it felt... In, in some ways, a kind of self-conscious knowledge that somebody was going to be looking at this one day. No, that's, that's absolutely right. I mean, his, his spoken voice was, of course, incredibly charismatic, that kind of granite, craggy Yorkshire voice that one can still hear in recordings of him, him reading. And that was one of the reasons so many women went weak at the knees when he spoke. Um, but I was more interested in his written voice. Uh, as you say, Razi, the amazing thing is that he, ev everything for him was material. He, he said once in a late interview, as an imaginative writer, my only capital is my own life. And it was as if in his, in his notebooks and letters and poetic drafts, he wanted to capture every aspect of experience. And the extraordinary thing about that, is that writing is that even the informal writing, the, the notebooks and so forth, all, all of this is in a very, very distinctive language that is immediately recognisable as, as Hughesian. And for, for words are the revelation of an inner life. My, the original title of my biography was Ted Hughes, The Inner Life. And I think to penetrate to the inner life of the subject, that's the holy grail for all biographers. I, I, I want to talk about um, the relationship 
between the biographer and the subject in terms of um, subjectivity, if you like. Do you have to like the person that you're writing about? Because there's a certain amount of obsession and obsessiveness that must go into having to devote yourself to uh, researching and, and writing the life of, of a person uh, such as any three of the, the, the subjects that you have chosen. So, uh, Bill, you, you clearly became Lucian Freud's friend because you spoke almost daily. So it moved from being somebody who went to interview him to something quite different. Does it matter that you have to like the person that you write about? Because there is a lot in the book that, for the reader, makes him quite unlikable. Well, I think if you're going to spend years and years on someone, you get to know them. And that, in a sense, it's not exactly liking, but it's um, concern and fascination and the desire to paint a portrait or, or write a portrait. I mean, I've conveniently divided mine into two volumes. The second volume comes out in a few months' time. And in the second volume, I appear much more. In the first volume, I don't, because I don't know him at the, didn't know him at the time. And so um, th the thing evolves and develops very much over the, over the years. And it's the way in which I weave myself in and out of Lucian's doings. And he's evasive, or he's candid, or, and he's extraordinarily badly behaved at times, but also generous and funny and... In a way, this over this length of time, um, what is a better word than friendship? Um, a, um, a, a liking, certainly, and an admiration, certain qualities, and um, aghast at occasional times. And I think that it adds to the mix and makes the life that more memorable. I'd say also that instead of Lucy's and Jonathan's um, concerns, mine is with a painter and not with a writer. So I'm not competing with um, excellence of phraseology and so on. But the Lucian I show is a, a, a very funny man in conversation, um, scary also in conversation sometimes, but primarily concerned with painting. And that's the centre of the books. It's so, his legacy. So, so Bill, why, tell us why scary? Why scary in conversation? Because um, as the firm of Peter Carter Ruck um, was engaged quite a number of times to, to deal with would-be biographers, <laughs> I was used as a shield. Um, I, I was writing the biography everybody else could clear off. Um, it, st strategically, this was a, a very complicated book to write. But, of course, as I lived my way through it, um, creating exhibitions, um, several of his main, main exhibitions in Venice and in London, San Francisco, um, and so on, and, and in Los Angeles, rather. Um, these, these intrusions came to a climax around about 2002, when he and I together launched a, a, or put on a John Constable exhibition in Paris. Um, this was like extraordinary revenge of English art on French art. <laughs> and it was a collaboration between us. And this was the sort of the high point of our relationship, I think, that we are both concerned with somebody else. Um, Lucy, let, let's talk about uh, D'Annunzio and your, your views of him. I mean, you've written that, um, you know, that you're, you're a woman writing about a self-styled poet of virility, a pacifist writing about a warmonger, uh, but that disapproval for you is not an interesting response. I mean, he really was on so many levels uh, a, a, 
a quite unpleasant man. He His vanity was rampant. He was narcissistic. His sexual desires knew no bounds. He wasn't nice to women. I, just, just talk me through that notion of disapproval not being an interesting response. Yes, well, I mean, when Bill talked about feeling aghast and watching what Lucian Freud was up to, I was repeatedly aghast at what I was discovering about my subject. But um, when I was was reading about yet another appalling act of misbehaviour on uh, Delancio's part, I would find myself thinking, how can you do that? How can you say that? How can you think like that? And those questions weren't just rhetorical. I began to think they were really rather interesting questions, especially when it came to his politics, which at the beginning of his life just seemed like um, sort of you know, romantic patriotism, which over the decades sort of mutated into really appalling um, extreme nationalism, militarism, and really bloodthirsty advocacy for warfare, any kind of war. As far as Dorinthia was concerned, what Italy needed to do in order to become a great nation was simply to, to shed blood. You know, these are these are appalling thoughts, um, but they're not peculiar to him. And so in writing about him, I was wanting to explore how people move, as actually all European culture did to some extent, from the early 19th century kind of pretty romanticism, which is about nature and the culture of the self, into the late romanticism which really curdles into something something that can very loosely be called fascism and so that actually it was denuncio's aghast making behavior and ways of thinking which i found most most stimulating really most interesting most worth exploring. Jonathan, what about you and Ted Hughes? Because, you know, we all we all know that there is a there there are a, a core of uh, very loud voices, all those people in the Sylvia Plath camp who blame Ted Hughes for uh, her death. Um, and 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 yet that is the central relationship that we all want to read about when it comes to Hughes, even though his marriage to Carol Hughes lasted until his death and he had many other relationships. And yet it's that central relationship that we're all really interested in. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, just going back on this question of moral judgment, uh, a lot of people, feminists especially, have morally judged Ted Hughes in a very negative way. My, my view is that the role of the biographer of a creative artist is to judge the quality of their work, to, to sort the wheat from the chaff in terms of the quality of the work, but not to make moral judgments about the person. Uh, that's for the reader to do. And what, in fact, sort of surprised me about the reception of my Ted Hughes biography was that I didn't have a single negative comment from a Sylvia Plath fan, the Plathians really were very, very sympathetic to the book. I think partly because 
what I discovered through reading his unpublished manuscripts and diaries was his enormous sense of grief and guilt over Plath's death, the sense that it was the central relationship of his life. And he spent the rest of his life trying to atone for the element of responsibility in her death. Although in terms of what actually happened in the last months um, of her life, it wasn't Ted Hughes that killed Sylvia Plath. It was depression that killed her. And there were one or two other people um, who were involved at the time. And we shouldn't really be playing the blame game there. For me, in a way, the upside of the process of his second wife, Carol, uh, disassociating herself from the book was it, it meant that Ted's sister, Olwyn, and his daughter by Sylvia, Frieda Hughes, became very close friends, helped me a lot with the book. And to, to see the Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath story through the eyes of their daughter meant that it, it seemed to me there was always a kind of sympathy running through the book. And I think that was one of the things that, 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 that meant it, it. It made some of the anti-Hughes brigade pause. How, how much of an impact, uh, uh, Jonathan, did it make on, on you in terms of the collating of the material, the, the thinking about it, that, that the book was not then going to be published by Faber? Yeah, well, that, 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 that was a big issue because Faber is, you know, the great literary publisher, Hughes's publisher, it was T.S. Eliot's publisher, Heaney's publisher. I really wanted it to be a literary biography with Faber. But obviously, um, once uh, the estate uh, deauthorised the book, um, then Faber had to withdraw from it. But in some ways, that was a liberation because it meant that I didn't have to have that that. That, that kind of devil's pact that an authorised biographer always has, whereby complete access is traded for the possibility that the estate will say, no, you can't go in that particular direction. Very rare um, is the creative artist um, who does, clearly as, as Lucian Freud did, and authorise a biography and also say, I'm not going to interfere with what you say. You can say what you Bill, like. Bill, did you want to come in there? Well, I did, because I think it's, it's, it's very important to note that, that, that besides having an admiration for the work and, and talking about the work, the whole thing is a portrayal, and portrayal is all aspects, if possible, or as many aspects as you can work out. And it's, just, it's a, it, it, in a way, the narrative is the portrayal, and... It's a distinct thing from the work that you're dealing with. You're, you're stepped back from that. But the person themselves, well, they are your victims to some extent. And they're your victims rather than your idol. If it's an idol, well, that's that's nothing. That's just useless. <laughs> I, I, we're almost coming to the end of the conversation, but I want, I want to pick up on something that you said earlier on, Bill, when you talked about... Um, gossip. So I would really quite like from all of you, your favourite juicy bit of t the, the tidbit that you discovered about your subject that you that you really loved, uh, tickled you, that, that made you think, oh, I can really make something from this and I've learned something, uh, an, a, another dimension of this person that I didn't expect. Let's start with you, Lucy. Well, there are so many with Donizio because he was um, he was such a colourful character. And also he was a celebrity throughout most of his life. He's not well known in this country, but in France, Germany and of course Italy, he was, you know, he was a superstar. So that in my 
as as you said earlier, not many people in the English speaking world know much about him. So I thought it was very important to tell his whole story right up front, because people they prefer to be told something they already know. And if you're writing a biography of someone like, say, Ted Hughes or Lucian Freud, both of whom are household names, um, you can assume a certain amount of prior knowledge. But I couldn't. So I did a, an early chapter in which I tell the whole of Denuncio's life story, but from the point of view of other people observing him. And because he was such a, a celebrity, that there are I had a lot of, of sources to choose from. I think I have 19 different points of view in that chapter. And I think one of my favourites is when um, he went backstage, uh, when he was living in Paris before the First World War, and he was working with Diaghilev, and he'd put on a show which is not performed much nowadays because it lasts for over six hours, but with beautiful music by Debussy, which you can sometimes find recordings of. And the star of this show was Ida Rubinstein, who was a, a Russian um, millionaires uh, heiress. And she had told Diaghilev that she would subsidize this ballet. She would fund it entirely on one condition, that she got to get the, the main part. She danced Cleopatra. That was the, going to be the story. Um, one small problem, Ida Rubinstein couldn't dance. So she stood in the middle of the stage while people revolved around her. She had a fantastic costume loaded with jewels and, um, and a lot of blue gauze and not much else. She was virtually naked. And there's a wonderful description of Donuncio going backstage afterwards in his you know, full tailcoat, proper evening dress, as gentlemen wore to the theatre in those days, uh, throwing himself on the floor at her knees. This was probably the first time they met. And she was still in her costume, i.e. virtually undressed. And he started kissing her, with kissing her big toe, and then kissing, kissing, kissing all the way up her leg until he reached her, as it were, her crotch. Um, he describes this himself. And all the, 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 the luminaries of, of literary and artistic Paris had gathered in Ida Rubenstein's dressing room to congratulate her the opening of Diaghilev's latest show was a big thing. And, of course, they were scandalised. And Danuncio absolutely adored this. So he he not only recorded his outrageous, most outrageous sort of performances, they were performances, they weren't just um, incidents, um, but he, he was staging them himself. So that uh, they're, they're sort of doubly doubly fictionalised. First of all, he was acting a scene, then he was recording the scene, then he was writing letters to everyone he could think of, and then he was going to put it into his next novel. Mm, I, wonderful. Um, Bill, I, I suspect that the, the list is long for, for Lucian too, in terms of uh, juicy stories. Well, there was the occasion in 1941 when he um, went to sea. He wanted to get to New York to meet Judy Garland, he claimed. And he went as a merchant seaman on the SS Voltrova, and he told me, the ship's boatswain, syphilitic, drunk, one-legged, uh, pursued him round the um, deck with a meat cleaver, and he narrowly got out of his way, and the uh, boatswain got arrested. Well, um, I thought, possibly a touch of exaggeration there. <laughs> 
But eventually in South Wales, I found the ship's log of the Baltrova and blow me, it was all absolutely true. <laughs> so there were these moments for a biographer when the, 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 the literature backs up the reality. What about you, Jonathan? What, what enlightened us with, with something that um, ended up in the book but really tickled you? Yeah, it, it ended up in the book slightly indirectly, actually, but it, it, it certainly was, I thought, the, the anecdote that, in, in a funny way, told me most about Ted Hughes. Hughes was obsessed with Shakespeare, as am I, and uh, I was told by the director of the Shakespeare Birthplace Trust about an occasion when Hughes went down to Stratford to give a talk about Shakespeare, and he had lunch um, with, with, with the director. And then after, after the lunch, he took him out to the car and said, let me show you what I've got in the boot of the car. And he opened up the boot, and there were 20 pairs of brown corduroy trousers from the family trouser factory back in, in Yorkshire. And Ted said, I can give you a really good price for these. Um, can, can, would, you, would you like to buy a couple of pairs? And, and, and what, what that revealed to me was, I mean, Ted was always, you know, on the lookout for a bargain and on the, on the lookout for money. Sometimes he'd write an extra manuscript of an old poem so that he, he could sell it. But the more serious point about that was that he never, after the, his early 20s, took another job. You know, he wasn't a, a bank clerk like T.S. Eliot or a teacher like Seamus Heaney or a university teacher, as so many poets are. It's very, very rare for a poet to survive through life purely on their writing. But he could only do that with a little bit of Yorkshire business now. I, I want to also just end by asking all of you to just reflect um, for us on um, the letting go of a subject that you have lived with for so long. Uh, Bill, let's start with you, because, you know, this was somebody who was your friend, who you wrote about after he had died, but letting go of the writing about him, which I suppose is hard, slightly harder for you because you've just finished writing the second volume. But so, so let's talk about it in the context of now, because the next volume is going to come out very soon. It's a, a sort of um, tragic departure. Um, far from being fed up with the subject, I feel I'm a bore on the subject. And the, the way in which one goes round, um, the, the Sharon Crossroad second-hand bookshops for a start, London Library, other places of sources, they're, they're dead for me currently. I've got to quietly wait until I can recover and go on to perhaps something else. No, it's, 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 I've lived the life with Lucian and it's very difficult to let go. Lucy, what about you? Yes, I think perhaps you never quite uh, quite let go. I, only a couple of weeks ago, I came across a wonderful paragraph from a review by Ian Forster of one of Dunnancy's novels. And I thought, oh, if only, if only I'd come across <laughs> this a few years back, I could have put it into the book. You know, that Absolutely, yes. constantly coming across other things I could have said, I would like to have said. Jonathan? Oh, well, for me, there is a little bit of a sense of unfinished business because there were seven really important facts that, because certain people were still alive, I could not include in the book. So it is an unfinished story. And, and might you be able to update it? That depends whether I live longer than those certain people. <laughs> Well, this has been such an enjoyable discussion. Thank you all so much. I mean, one of the things that has that I will take away from this is is how much writing about these people 
has transformed each of you and 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 it, it and that that comes through in the work as well i have so enjoyed engaging with it thank you so much uh, jonathan bate bill fever and lucy hughes hallett um, that's it for uh, this podcast uh, do join us next time for another conversation about non-fiction and in the meantime to keep up to date with the latest news about the bailey gifford prize sign up to the newsletter through the website and follow at Bailey Gifford Prize on Facebook and Instagram and at BG Prize on Twitter. Just a quick reminder that the 2020 Prize long list will be announced in September, followed by the shortlist in October. And the winner of this year's prize will be announced on the 19th of November in an announcement that is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation. As always, thanks again to the Blavatnik Family Foundation for their continued support for this podcast, which has, of course, been produced remotely. Uh, Thanks once again, Bill, Lucy and Jonathan. It's been wonderful to speak to all three of you. Read Smart, the Bailey Gifford Prize for Nonfiction podcast. This podcast is generously supported by the Blavatnik Family Foundation.